Listen, what do you hear? What? You don't hear anything? Now listen again, see if you hear something. Hi, my name is Robert Franz and I'm the associate conductor of the Houston Symphony. Each year, I conduct the Houston Symphony's family, education, and community concerts for tens of thousands of children and their families throughout Houston. I also work with many student musicians throughout the greater Houston area. So I've had some time to really think about connecting and making classical music. And I want to talk to you today a little bit about this process. And it all starts with something I call active listening. Now, every day we kind of go through life, we have these sounds that are sort of going past us. Uh, Literally millions of sounds in our soundscape or in our area that we are. And then you come to a concert hall, Jones Hall, and you hear the Houston Symphony warming up. And you listen to the concert and you think, okay, so now it's not passive sounds. Now these are active listening, like active sounds that I'm hearing and I'm, I need to actively engage with this art form. How do I do it? And so today in this podcast, I want to talk to you a little bit about that process. And we're going to start in kind of a funny way. So you're going to have to sort of go with me on this. I am going to ask you in a second to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to sit in complete silence for 20 seconds. And in the back end of that 20 seconds, I'm going to have some really important questions to ask you. So prepare yourself, make yourself comfortable. When I say go, I want you to listen to all of the sounds in your soundscape starting now. There you go, 20 seconds. Now, the thing is, I bet if you're like me, you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, there are actually a lot more sounds in this world that I'm sitting in than I imagined. And so now I want you to sort of think about those sounds. Like for instance, if you're sitting inside, you might hear the air conditioning system blowing. And you'll say to yourself, wow, I hear sort of this blowing sound, this this wishing sound of the air conditioner. But my question to you is what kind of sound is that? So is it a sudden sound or a sustained sound? Is it high pitch sound or low pitch sound? Is it loud or is it soft? Perhaps you heard the sound of a door closing or someone jingling their keys. Well, what kind of sound was that that they were making exactly? Was it the kind of sound that was one sound, two sounds? A line of sounds that were in some sort of pattern or rather they were sort of more jumbled up? These are the sounds that are in our soundscape. And what's interesting is to actually imagine or listen to those sounds specifically and say, how, how do I describe those sounds? Now, that process that you've just gone through, that very simple process of just describing the sounds that you hear in your world is the exact same process that you use, that we all use when we listen to classical music. Was the music sustained or were they sudden sounds? Were they short sounds or long sounds? Were there high-pitched instruments playing, like the violin or the flute? Or low-pitched instruments, like the double bass or the tuba? Was the orchestra playing really fast? Or was the music super slow? 
Just listening to actually what you hear in front of you can be an amazing way to engage and get involved with classical music because instead of how does that music make you feel, all of a sudden you're engaging with what's actually there in front of you. This is super important to understanding and enjoying and really connecting with classical music for people of all ages, especially if you're bringing children with you um, to see a concert for the very first time. I'd like to tell you a little bit about how this sort of process came to be for me because I uh, actually grew up in a family of non-classical musicians. Uh, My dad played a little bit of guitar, one song only that I remember as a child, and he knew some of the words to the song, and so I heard that my whole life. But really, I didn't grow up in a classical music environment until one day I was in school, in public school in fourth grade, and my teacher, Mrs. Losher, came around and she said, hey, do you want to play an instrument? I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And she said, well, what instrument do you want to play? And I said, I don't know, but all my friends are playing an instrument. So she said, well, let me see your hands. So she held up my hands and she said, those are the hands of a great cellist. And I looked down and I had no idea what that meant, but I thought it was the most magical thing that I had ever heard. And so the next day we went back to school and she taught us how to hold the cello and how to make a sound. And I remember taking the bow and drawing it across the string and hearing the sound. And I thought right then and there, I want to be a musician for the rest of my life. Just the idea of making this sound was so incredible and I was completely drawn to it. So I did that for a while and then eventually I changed, um, I switched instruments to the oboe. We moved from a school system that had strings and winds to a school system that just had woodwinds, brass, and percussion. And so in sixth grade, I changed to the oboe, um, an incredible instrument that eventually I went to college to study. I went to the North Carolina School of the Arts and I studied the oboe. Halfway through, Um, that time there working on my degree in oboe, I decided to take a conducting class just to see what it was like. I thought, well, I'll try it. I mean, it looks kind of cool. And if I'm going to be an oboist in an orchestra one day, I should know what the conductor is thinking from the other side. And so I I got up on the podium and I, I started the orchestra. We were performing the opening bars of Beethoven's Second Symphony. And right there, right at that moment, it was the end of measure one. I thought to myself, this is the coolest thing I've ever done in my entire life. I am going to be a conductor. And so I started studying, conducting, taking lessons. I eventually uh, earned a, a master's degree in conducting, also from the North Carolina School of the Arts. And I graduated with both of my degrees in oboe and in conducting, and um, no hope of getting a job, much to the chagrin of my parents. And uh, because in order to get a job conducting, you have to have experience. In order to get experience, you have to have a job conducting. And so I did a couple of different things. First of all, I started my own orchestra. I figured, you know, how hard can it be? And so the great thing about being 24 and just out of college is you have no idea what the answer to the question is. And so I just did it. I learned how to raise money and sell tickets and run an orchestra and conduct the orchestra. So I did that. But I also did a very interesting Uh, set of projects for the National Endowment for the Arts. It was a program called the Rural Residency Chamber Music Initiative in which we took music out to small communities. I lived in liberal Kansas for a year, right on the Oklahoma Panhandle, and Fitzgerald, Georgia for a year. Anyway, the, the idea of these residencies was to take classical music and share it with a public that maybe didn't have a lot of classical musicians or any, in the case of liberal Kansas at the time, in the city. And we played music all around town. But in order to do that, we had to really learn how to build bridges between classical music and the community. And so my lifelong quest of learning how to develop and build those bridges began. 
that continued on for a couple of years. And after that, I moved back to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where in addition to running that chamber orchestra I mentioned earlier, I was invited to run a research project at the at the Winston-Salem Symphony. They had just received um, funding to place a woodwind quintet. I was still playing oboe at the time in residence in an elementary school. We were put into residence at a school called the Bolton Elementary School. It was a Title I at-risk school. And the question was, if we integrate music into the curriculum, if we could affect the test scores of these children, kindergarten through third graders, without them actually playing an instrument. So um, my job was to create the programming for these grades. And so I went in and met with the teachers, and we worked together, the ensemble and the teachers and I, and we all developed these programs, and we integrated music into every aspect of the curriculum, math, language, arts, sciences. And we would go in weekly and teach a, teach a class using and involving and engaging with classical music. So this school, Bolton Elementary School, was um, a typical at-risk school in the fact that less than half, 44% of the kids were passing the state standardized test. After our working with those kids for three years, the, the numbers jumped to 88% of the kids passing the state standardized test. It was super exciting to us. But the truth is we didn't know exactly what we had done because we weren't scientists. We were musicians. So we invited some scientists in, a neurologist from the Bowman Gray School of Medicine, to see what we had done in the, in the region of the brain, what we had done in learning to develop these, these results. And what he discovered through analysis of our programs and what we had done is that we had developed high-level active listening skills in these kids. Active listening skills, it turns out, are key to being a good reader. And so our kids were reading at a levels way above their grade levels. And because they were such facile readers, they became facile learners. But also because they were active listeners, they engaged with classical music in an easy and a fun and a carefree way. But they understood it so deeply because they were just there, just engaging in this process of active listening with the music. And so based on that uh, whole process, when I got to Houston nine years ago, we started developing concerts, education concerts, that were based on this concept. So every one of our education concerts answers the question, how do you develop active listening skills? And every one of the activities, every one of the prompts that I give before playing a piece helps the kids develop those skills. I call these Bob's Four Tools. And these are activities uh, or ways to listen to music that you can use, that you can share with your children to use. They're really kind of fun. And they come from my father. Um, I was a junior, and so my dad was Bob uh, growing up. And um, we were on our way to a concert one day, and dad said to me, hey, what should I listen for at this concert? Because we were getting ready to perform the world premiere of a brand new symphony. It was a half hour long symphony. And I said to him, I said, you know, that's a great question, Dad. I'll tell you what, here are four things that you can do in the middle of the concert as you're listening to sort of figure out what's going on on stage. I call these tools, but they're sort of like screens, like a screen that you would have on a window, except that you put it over your ear and you listen to the music. The first screen or tool is rhythm. Now, the thing about rhythm is this. A composer can write a rhythm that is either copacetic or sort of goes with your heartbeat. Or they could write a rhythm that is super random and super chaotic and it goes against your heartbeat. 
and we can actually feel that. We have an emotional connection to whether or not the pulse of the music is beating with our heartbeat or making our heart race or making our heart swoon or making us feel uncomfortable. And so knowing that and sort of assessing, okay, so what am I hearing? Am I hearing a rhythm that's going with my heartbeat or against it? Well, that's really important. Second is, if that one stops working for you, if you can't tell kind of what's going on, pick up another screen. The other screen or a tool is the tool of melody. Now we think of a melody as a tune that you can sing, and of course that's a great definition of what a melody is. But the truth is, is that composers have really sort of expanded that, that idea of what a melody is, and it's not just something that's singable. It could be a melody that goes in all sorts of directions, super high, then super low. It could be a melody that gets performed by different instruments in the orchestra at different times and sort of, sort of shared around. Or it could just be a plain old beautiful melody that you want to hum as you go out of the hall. There are lots of ways to describe a melody. And so listening, using your melody tool, you can decipher sometimes and figure out, okay, well, what was the composer trying to do here? If neither of those tools work, the third tool you can pick up is one I call texture. And texture is this. If you imagine that the sounds of the orchestra, each sound is like a different color, and they weave together into a tapestry. And as you imagine, each instrument changes notes and changes colors, the color of that tapestry changes as well. And it's a, it's a really alive and changing kind of scenario. And sometimes a composer will forget about a melody, forget about the rhythm, and just create these incredible textures. So that's tool number three. Now the fourth tool is actually not one that you use your ears for, but rather you use your eyes for. Because seeing live music performed is an extraordinary event. You feel the energy from the stage, but you can also see what I call the choreography of the musicians. The bows of the string instruments moving the same direction at the same time in the same speed. Or the percussionist, if it's a really wild percussion piece, moving around backstage from one side of the back of the stage to the other. So the way these four tools work is that you can use one at a time, and if it doesn't work for you or it's not clear, put it down and try another one of these. Melody, rhythm, texture, and of course the visually what's going on on stage. So the result, as I was riding home with my dad, he looked at me and he said, that was a great concert. And I said, thanks. I said, what did you think of the new piece, the world premiere? And he said, I thought it was short. And I said, what do you mean it was short? It was a half an hour long. That doesn't seem like a short piece of music. He goes, I had just worked through your four tools and the piece was over. So I was ready for more music. And I thought that is the most amazing thing because he was so actively involved and so engaged in the music making and thinking about what he was hearing and how to listen to it that time just flew by and he had an incredibly engaged and connected experience with this uh, classical music. So these four tools are something that anybody can use. You can use them, you can share them with your children. And I look forward to experiencing your trying out these tools at one of my concerts one of these days at the Houston Symphony. On the Music is a co-production of the Houston Symphony and Houston Public Media. For more episodes and a complete list of credits, visit www.houstonsymphony.org backslash 
on the music. Thank you for listening.